Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by author, voting rights activist, and gubernatorial candidate for the state of Georgia, Stacey Abrams. This past week, Abrams and her longtime business partner, Laura Hodgson, published a new book called Level Up, a practical guide to starting and scaling a small business. It offers the kind of straightforward and sensible advice we've come to expect from Abrams, both the entrepreneur and the politician. For those unfamiliar, from 2011 to 2017, Abrams served as Georgia's House Minority Leader and representative for District 89. She was the first woman to lead Georgia's General Assembly and the first Black person to lead in the House of Representatives. While she was making history, she also launched the New Georgia Project in 2013, a nonprofit devoted to registering often overlooked voters and communities of color. The project was a massive success, bringing in over 86,000 new voter applications within the first year. But this ongoing fight for voting rights came to a head in 2018 when Abrams first ran for governor of Georgia against then-Secretary of State Brian Kemp. It was a closely contested race with a record-breaking turnout. But Abrams, despite her remarkable efforts, came up short. Brian Kemp became the 83rd governor of Georgia in November of 2018. Abrams, suspecting foul play from the GOP, founded Fair Fight Action in response. As of today, Fair Fight continues to challenge Georgia's restrictive voting laws. We get into some of those in this conversation you're about to hear. But between 2018 and now, Abrams has stayed on the path, undeterred, alongside activists like Deborah Scott, Helen Butler, and Tamika Atkins. She focused on the long game, investing in communities that politicians have long ignored. Some voters that have never voted, other voters that have felt like their vote didn't matter in the first place. All of this work eventually paid off in the 2020 election, as Abrams helped secure Georgia victories for President Biden and Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. On the heels of that historic success, she aims to unseat Brian Kemp in the gubernatorial race come November. But how does she plan to do this? 
How does she hope to combat the new voting laws that will unquestionably make it harder for Georgians to vote? Does she think it's possible to inspire a Democratic Party that currently feels rudderless? These were some of the questions I was thinking about ahead of sitting down with Abrams. And while we unpack all of this, we also get into the human toll of voter suppression, what a functional democracy could actually look like, the role of writing in her life, the first time she visited the governor's mansion, and so much more. So, I thank you for being here. Without further ado, this is Stacey Abrams. Quick sound test. What did you have for breakfast today? I had scrambled egg, toast, and assorted fruits. That's a real meal. (laughs) My parents are briefly staying with me, and my dad insisted because uh, he was making himself a fruit salad that I have one as well. So (laughs) I had a balanced meal because of my dad. It's good to know, even after all you've accomplished, your dad can still guilt you into eating breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) He truly, truly can. Stacey Abrams, nice to meet you. You as well. It is a tremendous honor to have you here, and I thank you for taking the time. Why don't we just jump right in? You have a new book called Level Up. It's a guide for small business owners. As we know, with the advancement of technology, it's never been easier to start a business, and yet it's never been harder to scale it. Half of new businesses in America don't make it past five years. I know you're very familiar with this. You've co-founded and worked with a handful of companies in the past decade. And from those experiences you write in the book, it's easy to feel powerless when you encounter failure caused by a systemic problem. Too often, the flaws feel personal and entrepreneurs are hardwired to take the blame. In this book, we want to help you better understand the often invisible and unexpected forces that hold back many small firms from fulfilling their potential. To start, what are those invisible and unexpected forces that you've mentioned here? We talk about a number of the forces we've encountered, and the list is certainly not exhaustive, but I think you can pour them into two categories. There's external and internal. Internally, we are trained by the great stories, the mythology of the small business person that it should be easier than it is. When you start a small business, you have a good idea, you put your blood, sweat, and tears into it, you put your back into it, and it will succeed. And that's just not how it happens. You're going to run into HR issues. Even if you hire one person, you now have an HR issue. (laughs) You are managing someone who relies on you for their daily bread, and there will inherently be conflicts. There are the challenges that come then with how do you make certain that you're paying a competitive wage that doesn't also sink your business. You are dealing with and grappling with the money you need to start your business. There's certainly a West Coast fable about how small businesses can be started with a small loan and a really nice garage, but for most small businesses, neither of those are available. And so it's really thinking about how do you access capital when you don't come from those means? And then there are the external forces. The external forces are that often the capital markets are not designed for small businesses. They're not designed for us to get the money we need. They're not designed for us to keep the money we make. And the solutions that are often proffered are solutions that try to take a Fortune 100 solution and scale it down to a small business. But small businesses are inherently different. And so what we try to demystify is that all of these stumbling blocks, these forces are not in your head. They are real, and some of them you can navigate through your own gumption and knowledge, and others we're going to have to band together because we've got to fix the rules. How did you personally navigate through those dizzying financial, political, regulatory systems? Sometimes very poorly. (laughs) So that's, that's part of the impetus for the book. You learn by trial and error. You learn by experimentation and weird success. And ultimately, I think that the success that we've had, my business partner, Laura Hodgson, and I have had, has really been grounded in always taking our lessons with us. Sometimes we learn our losses, but not our lessons. 
you ask a small business owner about a mistake they made, they can give it to you in great and granular detail. But you ask them about something they've done well, and they'll gloss over it to get to the next idea. We try to extrapolate our lessons and make sure we understood what happened. We took lessons about what we did right when we were raising money, how to pick clients, how to fire clients. And ultimately, when we wanted to solve a financial issue that we couldn't solve for our small business, we created a new business that solves it not only for us, but solved it, we believe, at scale for thousands of other small businesses. What you're describing are systemic issues embedded into the very fabric of capitalism, right? Yes. And yet, when people fail inside that flawed structure that you've described, they take it perhaps more personally than they should. They see their shortcomings more as a reflection of them than the system in which they are working. And it seems to me that the same can be said for a large swath of voters, especially in Georgia, that have felt let down by the structure of government. You have done, obviously, significant work to boost morale, to meet people where they are. But you, too, are forced to work in a system, which includes a new voting law passed last summer. Can you outline what this law will do to Georgia voters in your upcoming election? The work that I do, whether it's in politics, in the nonprofit space, or in business, it's always driven by trying to understand the architecture of the challenge and also understanding how you create solutions, not for your immediate problem, but how do you create systemic solutions that extend beyond you and if done well, tend to forestall the replication of those broken pieces again. And so with regards to voting rights, the identification of the broken system started years ago when I launched the New Georgia Project to address the underrepresentation of voters of color in our registration numbers in the state of Georgia. More than 800,000 people of color were not registered to vote. That led to a deeper investigation of the system, and we uncovered multiple flaws in the system that were designed either by legislation or by the practical application of the then Secretary of State. One of the challenges, and this is true in capitalism and it's true in democracy, is that the rules aren't necessarily made for the people they're supposed to serve. And we found that the voting laws were not being fairly implemented, but moreover, that the complexity of the system protected the system. And that that happens all the time. And so what we're finding with SB 202, the new law, is that they've made the system more complicated and by doing so will make it harder for the very users of that system to navigate it. One of the most famous examples is that they have changed absentee ballot rules. There is now this very odd 11-day window that is not a natural number for anyone to think of. But if you want to vote by mail, you have a window that closes within 11 days. And that presumes that you know what day (laughs) the last day is and that you count back and that you count back properly, uh, not counting the last day is the 11th day or is it the 11th day? It's looking at the fact that you are not permitted to use drop boxes that are outside since the whole notion of a drop box is that you drive up and drop it, but now you have to drive up, park, go inside and drop it. It has rules about your ability to get access to information, and it also increases the likelihood of voter subversion and election subversion. What does that mean? So election subversion is when they can just decide they don't like the outcome and they can change the rules. And we're already seeing that at play because they've changed how local elections are managed. And we have already seen a number of counties remove African-American members. We've seen raised concerns about the closure of polling places. There was a a debate. It it has not resolved itself completely, but there was a county that sought to shut down seven polling places and leave only one polling place, even though it was largely rural county. We believe they've come to a resolution, but the window remains open for changes. And the point being that this law, by its very intention, is designed to use the complexity of the system to push voters out because so many voters use the system successfully in 2020 and 2021. But they don't frame it in that way. Of course not. How do they frame it? How do they sell it to their constituents? They rely on what is commonly referred to as the big lie. They rely on the 
I'm trying to think of the most appropriate language, but lie is the best word. It's a kindergarten word, but it works. We're not against kindergarten <laughs> words here. Nor am I. I recently wrote a children's book, so I'm very good with kids' language. The point was that the wrong people in their estimation voted. We saw increased numbers of young people voting. We saw dramatic increases in communities of color participating. We saw increases in rural communities of color participating. And so the rules as they were rejiggered are designed to push those very participants out of the process. They argue that it is for the protection of the right to vote, but the vote wasn't vulnerable. In fact, it was one of the safest votes that we've had. And it was one of the most accessible because we made certain in response to the 2018 election that accessibility was increased, that the effectiveness of the system worked. And so this is a direct response. But the argument they're making is, well, someone could do something bad. Therefore, we're going to stop everyone from doing anything, which is the antithesis of what a democratic, small d, democratic system should look like. And if you extend out from there to the conversations about small businesses, it's the same ethos that instead of solving the problem for the very people, the people who benefit from the chaos instill more chaos into the system. And some do it out of malice, which is what I believe is happening with the voting laws. Sometimes it's done out of laziness and sometimes it's simply done out of ignorance. If you've never run a small business, if you've only ever been in the larger corporate structures, you don't understand how capital and equity can cripple a small business and spur on the success of a large company. What would a system that wanted people to vote, perhaps a system with less broken parts, what would that look like in 2022? So voter suppression has three parts. It's the metric you should use to determine the success of your voting system. So you want to look at, can you register and stay on the rolls? Can you cast your ballot? And does your ballot get counted? And so first and foremost, Georgia has a pretty good registration system. We have almost 95% of our eligible population registered to vote. That is a good thing. The issue is, how often people get taken off of the system, which is known as voter purging. And so the first change would be that the voter purge rules, which we have been able to make incremental changes to, that we finally remove the ability to stop someone from voting in the future because they failed to vote in the past. Refusing to vote should not be a predicate for removing someone from the voting rolls. So it's, can you register and stay on the rolls? So that's one. Number two, can you cast your ballot? Well, you cannot cast your ballot if your polling place is closed. You cannot cast your ballot if they move your precinct, but you don't have a car and there's no public transit where you live. You cannot cast your ballot if the only day you have off because you're on one of those schedules where they can call you anytime they want and the only day you're absolutely certain you have off is Sunday and your county has now decided to eliminate Sunday voting, which is what happened in a county here in Georgia. And so it's making sure that we have as many opportunities available for casting the ballot that understands the complexity of human life in the 21st century. And then it says your ballot get counted. We know that absentee ballots are being rejected at astronomical rates right now in the state of Texas. It's going to likely happen in Florida when they start their process. We saw it happen here in Georgia. When you make the rules harder for people to cast those absentee ballots, when you make the rules so arcane that a normal thinking person cannot meet the standards, then that is not right. But the other piece of it is making sure that we don't have these partisan and anti-voter groups that have the ability to question your validity as a voter and get your vote thrown out. So it's making sure your ballot, once cast, actually gets counted and gets included in the final tally. And that's the ongoing national conversation because the federal laws that we've been pushing, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act says that no matter where you live in the country, if you're in Georgia with its grotesque approach to voting rights or in a great state that does it right, that your geography shouldn't determine the quality of your voting rights in the United States. And that's why we need federal laws that actually equalize many of these issues that I've raised. I'm glad you brought that up because you've also proposed same-day registration, Mm -hmm. making Election Day a national holiday. That also includes paid time off, especially for those who can't take that day off either because the work literally demands that they have to stay at their job or financially they need the day's wage. Unfortunately, my understanding is that those are not going to be features in the upcoming Georgia election. You mentioned the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. 
That too seems to have stalled in the Senate. I guess what I'm getting at is the repairs that you and I believe need to be made to improve democracy for all people, irrespective of party, they are likely not going to be completed by the time voters cast their ballot in your gubernatorial race. And so what are you doing differently in 2022 to avoid the outcome that came from your 2018 run? In 2018, we planned for the known voter suppression activities. We educated voters, we engaged, and we saw record turnout and record participation. What occurred, unfortunately, were the unknowns. We were unaware of some of the actions that had been taken by the Secretary of State. We did not know the scale of voter suppression behaviors. What were those behaviors? So more than one million voters were purged from the rolls by 2018, including thousands of voters who were purged wrongly, including the cousin of Martin Luther King Jr. She was denied the right to vote and had to navigate the system, having voted from the same precinct since, the I think, the 1960s. We know that under his exact match system, a system we had sued him on, Secretary of State had reimposed that system, and more than 50,000 voters were denied their registrations being processed, the vast majority of whom were voters of color, 70% of whom were African-American. 214 polling places, precincts shut down. And in a state with few thousand precincts, that mattered. And there was an AJC, an Atlanta Journal-Constitution report that pointed out just how many thousands of voters were likely denied the right to vote because they could not reach a polling place. And so when you tie all of these things together, that level of voter suppression absolutely impeded the ability of eligible Georgia voters from casting their ballots. I have no claim to who they would have voted for, but the sheer volume of suppression was real. And in response, in 2020, in 2021, in 2019, we worked hard to remedy many of these challenges through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy. And the result in 2020 was record turnout and record participation among many groups. Heading into the 2022 election, we know that the changes made in 2021 were a direct response to the increased volume of participation and to the nature of that participation. And so my campaign is not relying on the goodwill of the Georgia Secretary of State or the governor of Georgia who promulgated these laws. Our approach is built on the intent of the voters. And so we will work with voters to make sure they, number one, understand these new impediments to their right to vote, that we help them learn how to navigate where they should and circumvent where they can, and that more than anything, we refuse the psychic effect of voter suppression because there's the actual effect of blocking you. But the psychic intent of voter suppression is to convince you it's not worth trying. You referenced paying for a day off. Well, in Georgia, that matters because if you're African-American, you are the most likely to stand in line for more than an hour. And in some parts of Georgia, the lines get up to eight hours long. That's an entire day's wage. You can't afford to vote. And if you can't afford to vote and you talk about it with your friends in your neighborhood, there are others who decide, well, I, I'm not going to waste my time standing in line for four hours and not cast my ballot. And so you lose an entire community's worth of participation because of the psychic effect of voter suppression. We're going to work on that as well, because when people believe that more is possible, they are more likely to participate. And when they are aggrieved, when they know that someone is trying to take a right away from them, people are much more likely to use it. And my mission is to make certain that voters in Georgia know what their rights are and they know that they have the absolute ability to exercise that right. In practical steps, mm -hmm. what does that look like? Well, I've been at it for a while. It started with- You're laughing uh, <laughs> at my question. <laughs> no, not laughing at your question. No, I'm, 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 I'm chuckling in approval. The New Georgia Project, which is the organization I founded, it's now an independent standalone entity, but it was premised on the recognition that voter registration is one part of the equation. But voter registration has to always be coupled with voter education. Otherwise, it's like giving someone the keys to a car, but never teaching them how to drive. And so those efforts continue and they are 
executed by a number of terrific organizations throughout Georgia. And I know they're continuing to do that work, especially in marginalized and disadvantaged communities that otherwise would be forced to figure this out on their own. The second opportunity is that you talk about what's out there. Voter suppression worked for so long because it was seen as user error. This goes back to the conversation with Level Up. There's an instinct to think it was your fault. And so what we do is make sure people understand, no, it's not paranoia. They really are after you. And here's what that looks like. And so it's making sure that there's both education and there's awareness. Here's what to look for. But then the third is to make sure people have the resources they need to actually participate. So Georgia has rules now about who can tell you how to apply for an absentee ballot. They have rules about whether or not you can stand in line for hours without dehydrating because they want you not to get water or food while you're standing in line, even though it's always hot in Georgia. And so we are going to figure out ways to make sure that people come prepared for the long lines. There's going to be a lot that we have to do, and it's going to differ because this is a massive state. This is a state with 159 counties. And so we're going to meet people where they are, and we're going to make sure that the groups that are independent have the ability to do what they should, and that our campaign separate from that is also working with voters through Election Day. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com business podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. 
Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. Three years ago, you said in The New York Times, fundamentally, Georgians don't care about your party. They care about their lives. Do you still think that's true? Absolutely. I think it's true for Americans. I think it's true for anyone who lives in a system where others are in charge of making choices for them. There are Republican ideas that benefit my life. There are Democratic ideas that benefit my life. I tend to believe the equation is balanced more heavily on the Democratic side because of the life that I've led. That is the party to which I give my fealty. But I work with people from differing political views because the people who are being served do not care. They don't care if you were tall, short, left-handed, right-handed, Democrat, Republican, or independent. They care about whether or not you see them, you understand their challenges, and you actually do the work to address those challenges. And that's fundamentally how I approach the work that I do. And I think fundamentally, that's why people connect with you, because you are making an active attempt to meet them where they are, which is how you won more votes than any Democrat has ever won for statewide office in 2018. It's how you helped deliver wins for Senator Warnock, Senator Ossoff. But I wonder if that instinct comes from how and where you grew up. You're the second of six children, your father, a shipyard worker, your mother, a college librarian. Of your childhood, you said, I grew up in the state of Mississippi, where the Confederate battle flag was the state flag. I moved to Georgia, where the Confederate battle flag was incorporated into the state flag, where you could not enter a bank or the state capitol without this waving notion of what you should expect inside. And I have to say, before we sat down, I was thinking of that image. A young woman in the 1980s, coming of age in a hostile environment with a deeply racist history. And I wonder if this is where your guiding philosophy was born, to meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. Because the gap between those two ideas in the South, where people are and where you wish they were, was so wide that you had no room to live in the fantasy of where you'd like them to be because you were constantly reminded with language or Confederate flags of where they were. That's absolutely true. I mean, my parents are extraordinary people. My mom and dad both came of age during the civil rights movement. They met when they were 16, but when they were 14, my dad was arrested registering Black people to vote in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We tease him that my mom was doing the same work on the other side of town. She just managed not to get caught. But they both came of age with this very real sense of obligation that your responsibility when you see a problem is to try to solve it. Even if you know the solution may not be met with welcome arms, if, even if it's met with steel shackles on your wrist, which is what happened to my father. They raised us with the same ethos. And what they also raised us to understand is the complexity of how we address the world around us. There is always going to be an instinct to force you into a very unidimensional notion of who you are and what you can be. Because people want you to be what they expect. And we grew up working class, working poor, depending on you know how good the paycheck was that week. We grew up without having visible examples of possibility around us. But my parents believed that they could create the sense of opportunity for us. We read voraciously because my mom was a college librarian. My dad would tell us stories. But we also served. My parents would take us with them to volunteer. 
And we would look askance because we're like, you guys do know we're poor. We don't have running water at home. So why are we at this homeless shelter? Um, But my mom and dad wanted us to understand that your responsibility was to act beyond your capacity. And, And while that was in service, it also has this amazing dream effect on you. When you know that you can do more, even when you don't have, it starts to knock down the barriers to your vision of what's possible. And my mom, when my parents became ministers, my mom's mantra was meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. They would go into communities, not trying to chastise people for where they are, but would try to find out why they were there. Were they there because that's where they chose to be or because they didn't know there was anywhere else to go? And then they would help build the road. And that to me is the most important job, whether you're talking about the business world or the nonprofit world or the political space, People want to know that you know where they are, but they also want to know you know why. And then they want to know that you're willing to help them figure out where to go next. If they're happy where they are, okay, let's make sure that where they are is as comfortable as it can be, but that comfort has to be built and it has to be a shared responsibility. You can't give people their own success. Folks want to do it themselves. Most people want you to help them. They don't want you to do it for them. And that's true in almost every facet of our lives. But when we abandon the idea that help is necessary, that is where we fail in our responsibilities as citizens. And so this is a very long way of coming back to your your point, which is when I would see that Confederate flag, what it was supposed to tell me was that I was less than. What I heard was get rid of it. And what it was supposed to tell me was here's your place and do not aspire any higher. And what I heard is live your ambition and make sure you bring as many people with you as possible. Because yes, you start where you are, but the best way to get where you wanna be is to bring as many people as you can with you as you go. Many people have talked about your ambition (laughs) and you have said, I think quite pointedly, that we have been taught communities of color, certainly black women, to practice self-effacement as opposed to practicing humility. Then we question why there hasn't been progress made. In part, it's because if we want more, there's immediately a reaction. In 2017, when someone reported that I said, yes, I would like to one day be president, the larger narrative was that there was something inelegant and actually wrong-headed about airing that ambition. Do you think this country is becoming more accepting of women's ambition, particularly Black women's ambition? I ask that nervously and knowing that (laughs) I don't know if I want the answer, but I have to ask it. Laura Hodson, my co-author in Level Up, we met because in 2004, we were in a leadership conference and it was race day, which is a day where everyone in the conference, we talk about the awkward and uncomfortable issues of race. The very intuitive moderator picked me out of my intentional silence. Why intentional? I'm an introvert and I like keeping my information to myself unless I have to, but I am also someone who believes in getting things done. So when speaking aloud makes sense, I do. So in this instance, I was sitting quietly hoping he would not pay attention to me and he noticed my reticence and asked me what secret I hold, what ambition do I have, what dream do I have that I've never spoken aloud. And I said, I would like to one day be president of the United States. And this is 2004. This is pre-Obama. This was only three years after the first Black woman became mayor of Atlanta, and she became the first Black woman to be a mayor of any major city. So my audacity was palpable. Later on, I'm standing in line for lunch, and this woman runs up to me, and she's like, oh my God, I have to meet you. And I'm like, who are you? Please back up. And it's Laura. (laughs) And she says, I've never heard anyone say that before. I want that too. And in that moment is the encapsulation of what you're asking. Laura and I have very different personal histories. We have different political belief systems. We come from very different spaces. But in that moment, we were both women, young women, who for the first time found common cause in stating and allowed an ambition that we were chastised for having. She wasn't asked the question because the question was being premised on race. And so I was able to answer it, but I was answering it as a Black person, as a woman, as a Black woman. And she found fealty with me because of that. Yes, 
We are in a much better place than we have been because if that had been 10 years before, I didn't even feel that. I talk about this in, in one of my books. I wrote this spreadsheet when I was in college. You're 18 years old. It comes on the heels of a breakup. Yes. <laughs> on the heels of a breakup, as I reminded myself that he was wrong about my potential and I was right, I did an angry planning session. And so using what was then Lotus 123, I did a spreadsheet laying out my ambitions. The highest political ambition I could envision for myself was mayor of Atlanta. There had never been a Black woman to do that job, but it was the highest job, executive job, I'd ever seen a Black person hold where I thought a Black woman could have that job. And so in 1992, it was mayor. In 2004, I could whisper aloud that I wanted to be president. In 2018, I stood for governor. And in each of those moments, I was giving credence to other dreamers, to Black women, to Black girls, to girls of color, to girls everywhere who are chastised about their ambition. Because what has always galled me about this is why wouldn't we want people to be ambitious? Why wouldn't we want young people and especially communities that are often denigrated because of their lack of achievement? You solve that by encouraging their ambition and by celebrating their success. And I needed to hear it. I answer those questions proudly now, a question that I was very reticent to answer in 2004. I answer very assertively today. I just had to be the one to say it the first time. And I want to say that for other young women. And yes, we had Shirley Chisholm and we've had Barbara Jordan and we've, we have these amazing women but in a contemporary moment, we have to remember that children don't always go to history books to find their opportunities. Sometimes they're passing by the TV where their parents are sitting, and I want them to hear me say it for them. I bet. Uh, what was that guy's name? Chad? Yes. <laughs> I bet Chad feels really dumb now, doesn't he? I wish Chad the very best. <laughs> always a politician. I f by the way, of course, his name is Chad. He's a lovely guy. <laughs> but, you, you know, what you're actually talking about as kids walk in and out of the living room and see you on TV talking and being yourself. You're talking about these dreams and how many people made those dreams feel like a far-fetched fantasy. And it dawned on me that you have written nine novels, I believe, eight romances, one thriller. And I wonder, does the page afford you a complexity, a messiness, a humanity, that working in politics does not. It's a different way to express it and a different way to think about it and conceptualize. I started writing fiction before I was immersed in politics. My first one was when I was in law school. And I was then practicing as a tax attorney for several years when I wrote the next three. I was in deputy city attorney, and then I was in office. And along the way, what I've always seen as a through line is that there's a catharsis in being able to express your darker impulses <laughs> through, through romantic suspense, uh, which is what I write. There's a body count most of my books. There's also a little bit of vengeance. So my very first boyfriend, he is mentioned in my first book because I used his dissertation as the premise. And when he scoffed at the idea, I put him in prison in the book and there he languishes to this day. We are also good friends these days, too. But I think the through line to your question is that there's a messiness to humanity that is pervasive no matter what genre you're in, no matter what you're doing. And the issue is containment. I can do more containment on the page. I can do more containment in a plot. And I can shape the elegance and fluidity of my answers much better when I get to edit a couple of times before it goes to print. But I just want to follow up. That messiness you're talking about in literature, do you believe that's afforded to you as an elected official? It's afforded to some. Is it afforded to those within my orbit? Yes. To me, no. <laughs> I mean, look, there, there are those who, by nature of the acceptability of their presence, they get a lot more flexibility for their flaws. I don't get that. What do you mean by that? We've recently had public leaders who have been masters of malapropism, who have been wildly racist in their language, sexist in their behavior, 
and they operate with impunity. And we have smaller scale versions of that. For others, when you're not to the manner born, you don't get the same amount of rope to hang yourself with. You are, <laughs> you are, the expectations are higher and forgiveness is a lot harder to come by. It's not impossible. And I've benefited from it myself, but it is a lot harder and you have to be much more careful about mistakes you make. You have to be much faster about correction and you have to be intentional every moment, which should not be mistaken for being inauthentic. But yes, I operate every day knowing that a misstep that would be forgiven for a guy will not be forgiven for me. That line between intentional and inauthentic, how do you personally grapple with that? I tend to be careful anyway. I believe language matters. It's part of how I operate in the world. And I try my best to be as precise as I can. But I also have to have space for reaction. And it's inauthentic when I pick the word because it's what you want to hear, not because it's what I want to say. I'm authentic when I pick the word that says what I need to say and gives you space to hear it. That's where I need to be. I guess I'm asking you all this because I've been following your work for a long time. And I wonder, especially in the last five years of heightened attention from the former president, from the GOP, from irate Republican voters, uh, both in Georgia and across the country, does it weigh on you? I have become a proxy for many wars I'm not party to, but I've also become an avatar for things that I do want to see happen. And you cannot celebrate the latter without acknowledging the former. If I want people to see me and to hold up these values that I hold up, that I want them to engage with me on these battles for democracy and for safety, if I want people to have education and healthcare, if I want us to be better people and I want to be one of the people seen as that, then I can't then be upset that I am taken out of context or that I am misappropriated or that people take exactly what I've said and say they hate it. That's their prerogative, but you can't have one without the other. It's disingenuous to think that only the people who like you are going to listen to you. And so, yeah, of course it, it weighs on you. It's, it's a terrible thing to be told how horrible you are. And it is painful to me because I know what my intentions are, but I don't dwell on it too much because if the people who need to hear something I've said hear it, if people with bad motives also hear it, yeah, mazel tov. You're running once again to be governor of Georgia. It's something you still want to do in spite of everything we've just talked about. And I wonder if we can think about the full arc of this going back to 1991, where you attend Spelman College, a historically black women's institution that was founded in Atlanta in 1881. Do you remember the first time you went to Georgia's governor's mansion? I do. What happened that day? 1991, I was the valedictorian for my high school. And as one of the valedictorians from across the state, you are invited to visit the governor at the governor's mansion, West Paces Ferry Road. They bring you in two shifts. So there's a Saturday and a Sunday. I was allotted a Sunday visit time. And my parents and I got ready for the day. We got dressed up. We went outside and we got on the bus because my parents didn't own a car. We didn't have the money for a car. So we used public transit. We took the bus, got to the governor's mansion, got off the bus, walked across West Paces Ferry, walked up the driveway to the guard station. And there were cars coming in, bringing kids from around the state. And the guard came out and he looked at me, he looked at my parents, and he told us we didn't belong there. My dad said, no, 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 this is my daughter. We're here for this event. And he did not ask for our invitation. He did not ask for proof. He was very adamant that we were in the wrong place. And I remember him looking over our shoulder at the bus that was leaving. And I was you know, wishing very intentionally that I could be on that bus as it left because this is embarrassing. 
but my mother had my arm and was <laughs> not going to let me escape. My parents pushed back and they argued with him and they made him check his checklist. They forced him after a fairly protracted conversation to finally verify my right to be there. And he did. My name was at the top of the list. I think there was one person whose name was ahead of mine on the list, but I was the first or second name. And they let us inside. But I recount the story because I don't remember meeting the governor. I don't remember the event. don't remember being in the governor's mansion. My only clear memory was that guard telling me that we didn't belong there, that I wasn't going to be allowed to go inside. He knew what the day was. He knew what the day meant. And he did not see in me someone who should be permitted to join this august occasion. What do you think that day did to you? I did not think of that day for many years. It was when I was running for governor that it came up again. And it actually was my mom. <laughs> we were talking about the race and and it was not in a pejorative context. We were just talking about it. And she said, well, it'll be really different when you go to the governor's mansion this time. And I thought, oh, yeah. And it's one of those memories where you, it wasn't the first time I'd faced racism. It wasn't the first time someone told me I was in the wrong place. It wasn't the first time I was underestimated. It wasn't even the, the only time the governor's mansion debacle should have come up, but it was a very pointed reminder of what had happened the last time. And for me, it became part of the conversation about why I'm running. And and that to me goes to the sort of whole arc of this conversation. I'm running because I want Georgia to be the place that opens those gates. I want your background and your zip code and your parentage and your modes of transportation to be irrelevant when we think about your ambition and your success and your access. I'm running because I want those gates to be open. I'm running because I think I can be the one to make it happen. And I'm running because I understand all the different parts of it. I've been in every part of the state physically, but I also understand the different lives. And, and circling back to Level Up, one of the reasons we wrote the book was to tell our story. But more than that, it was to talk about the systemic issues. I want people to understand that I understand that I've been where you are and I want to help you get to the next level. And as someone who's been a small business owner and wants to be governor, I can tie those two things together. And I'm not a small business owner who inherited a business or grew a business that was wildly successful. I failed in business and I know why I failed and I know why I've succeeded. And I want to make sure you don't have to do both of those over and over again, that you get to scale up and succeed when you're ready. My last question for you. Yes. In describing your approach, which you've just outlined, Jelani Cobb and The New Yorker wrote, it's an optimistic view, a belief that people are motivated more by their common aspirations than they are by their tribal fears. He wrote that back in 2019. A lot has changed between 2019 and 2022. Do you believe Georgians are more motivated by their common aspirations than by their tribal fears? Do you still believe that after all we've seen? My belief is that we have to redefine tribe. And that's why my premise is One Georgia. I come from a family that has five brothers and sisters, we are very, very different people. We have wildly different aspirations and we have followed very divergent paths. But when we need something, we come together. I think that the tribal aspiration and the tribal fear can be mitigated and harnessed when we stop thinking of ourselves in competition with one another and instead think of Georgia as a state of opportunity. It can sound cliche, but I mean it sincerely that part of the way to break systems is to redefine the question. We let ourselves get trapped by the framing that we're given and the successes I've had, the work that I've been able to do, the ways my businesses have been able to grow. My relationship and partnership with Laura has always been harnessed around this idea that we redefine the question and we don't let ourselves be held hostage by someone else's way of thinking. So what's the question? The question was common aspirations, tribal fears. I think we reframe the question. Who's our tribe and what do we need? And the question I need Georgians to answer for me is how can I help? You know, you have this optimism about you that is really infectious. Well, thank you. And I realize 
it's maybe not a great time to use the word infectious, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> My last question for you, after all the challenges you've faced and attacks and flagrant attempts at voter suppression in the past few years, when you wake up in the morning, what in your heart says, this is the work I need to be doing? Governors are responsible for protecting and lifting up the lives of those that they lead. I am a good leader. I am a good manager. I'm a good executive. I know how to build things that are sustainable. I know how to solve problems that seem intractable. I know how to navigate communities that seem wholly divided from one another. And I know how to win. And for me, winning is not about winning an election. It's how do you make sure that the person who is the least likely to believe their life will change with a new governor finds themselves in four years saying, thank God you won. That's why I'm running, because I know I can make that person believe in more and believe more is possible. Well, I have to say, for the last five years, you've done that in me, and I'm sure many people listening. So I want to thank you for that and for the time you have given me. It means the world. Thank you, Sam. This has been delightful. Stacey Abrams, stay safe. Take care. That's our show. Special thanks to Amanda Lang, Nina Nacholino, and the team at Portfolio Books. I'd also like to thank Darnell Strom, Fair Fight Action, and of course, the one and only Stacey Abrams. To purchase her latest book, Level Up, and to learn more about her work, visit our website at talkeasypod.com. There, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed this one, I'd recommend our talks with Representative Ilhan Omar, Gloria Steinem, Beto O'Rourke, Roxanne Gay, Julian Castro, Dr. Cornell West, and Brittany Packnick Cunningham. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. As always, this show would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Bastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones. Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Shiloh Fagan. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with author Margaret Atwood. Until then... Stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.